2: and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Vine for September 20th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin, and joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflet.
1: Good evening, sir.
2: And welcoming us for not the first time, maybe the third or fourth time, but the first time as a special guest host filling in for Catherine tonight. Welcome, Kelly Macias.
3: Hi, thanks for
2: having me. Yes, great, glad to have you on, Kelly. Um, well, tonight, in just a little bit, about 20 minutes into the show, um, from the Center of Politics at UVA, uh, Kyle Condick will join us, uh, tell us different things that the crystal ball is, uh, you know, looking at because they're making predictions and analysis on races across the country. Uh, but until then, um, you know, we kind of had topics planned out, Tim. I think I sent them out on... Um, Uh, You know, Friday and of course Friday evening there was sad news that uh, changed the dynamics of our show And um, we'll start off with that, the the sad passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, We need to start off like we do with any giant of politics by honoring her life and legacy Um, Kelly, just kind of what's some of your general thoughts of her work and her life?
3: Oh, well, there's so many to name. I mean, I think about being a um, a young woman um, and, you know, really looking up to Justice Ginsburg in particular, all the work that she did around gender rights. You know, because of her work, I, I live in a country where I receive equal pay for equal work. You know, I have access to reproductive health care and I have reproductive autonomy, um, You know, I I think about um, some of the decisions that she's made in the last few years, um, you know, standing up for marriage equality, um, you know, trying to ensure access to voting rights. I mean, it's really a a tremendous loss, of course, for her family, but also for all of us uh, around the country.
2: Yes. Uh, Tim, some of your thoughts on her life and work.
1: I was... uh thinking that in a short time in a short space of time, look look what we've lost with John Lewis and now Justice uh, Ginsburg. Uh it, it it's sad that we have to say goodbye to these marvelous people in and, and and especially in such a perilous time in 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 which their wisdom is needed uh and sought so much. Uh she was unique on that court in the way that I guess Oliver Wendell Holmes and Thurgood Marshall uh were both unique. She in that she was already very well known. She brought a kind of rock star status with her. She was uh the picture of steady and serene. She she was an ultimate champion uh of women's rights. Uh and her her triumphs and her tragedies, of course, are well documented. I won't really get into the details of any of those here, uh, but she she was uh, she was just somebody that is just one of those people that's impossible to replace. We can succeed her, but replacing her that's another story.
2: Yes. Um, I, I guess a few years ago, maybe in the last two years, saw the, the movie about her early life on the basis of sex, and you really find a whole new appreciation um, that goes beyond politics. If anybody today, not much less than the 1950s today, started Ivy League Law School, had an infant child, and their husband was stricken with cancer – or their spouse was stricken with cancer, and then they were also trying to uh, find, their, finish their law degree, and you wanted to help them, and you took all of that on, and you managed to you know, make the Harvard Law Review and finish first in your class when you later transferred to Columbia, uh, a different Ivy League school. You would be in awe of this person, and she did this by her 20s. And, you know, that's just before she started her career. Um, She started out as a teacher um, of the law and then got involved with ACLU's project that y'all alluded to with um, Equal Pay for Equal Work um, and and just built her career from there. Uh, When she was uh, nominated, she was um, confirmed ninety six to three um I really have no clue on the three. I guess that was obviously in a different time, unfortunately, but it shows how strong her um, judicial qualifications were and then later in her life, when she served um just the the comment she made on the Shelby case that was so down to earth it was like that she compared you know moving voting rights away to just because you have an umbrella up doesn't mean. If you're not getting wet, it's not raining, and I think that was a very common-sense piece of logic that people could understand that wasn't you know, something that only a lawyer could understand. And then her friendship um, with Anthony Scalia, uh, even though they were polar opposites in how they viewed the law and a lot of things, they found common ground to, uh, on a social level, and we know we miss that at times, and that's where our politics has gotten so contentious um, – it kind of segues in when he died four years ago, ten months before the election, we had a different but somewhat similar situation as we do now. Now we're even less than ten weeks uh, from the election, and it's been handled a different way. Now, usually we would like to just celebrate the person's life for a week and then um, the next week talk about the politics of it. But this situation is moving so fast. I think it is close to the election. that's part of it. And part of it is there are people like Mitch McConnell that just see opportunity for their political gain. Um, Kelly, we hate to do this, but we've got to move into the um, you know the replacing her side of this. Uh, we know from four years ago it, it can stay open ten months. Uh, you can go through an election with an eight, eight um, co- or an eight person court. Um, what's some of your thoughts on how this process could and or should unfold?
3: Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I agree with you that, um, in a different time, we might have taken space to pause and reflect on her life and her legacy before talking about her replacement. Um, but we know we're not living in ideal times or even normal times. Um, and so we have to have this conversation, um, instinctively, actually, after I heard the news, maybe 10 or 15 minutes later, I actually said, um, I have a feeling that Mitch McConnell is going to backtrack and say that what he said in 2016 after Scalia died is no longer relevant. And indeed, later on in the evening, maybe two hours or an hour or so after her death was announced, he put out a statement saying, oh, no, we definitely intend to fill this vacancy, right? So if nothing, Mitch McConnell is consistent, um, and he's dangerously effective, um, and, that, and that should really have us worried. Um, you know, I, I absolutely see them trying to push through a, a nominee very quickly, um, and because the Republicans hold a majority in the Senate, you know, it is it's it's a possibility that they will do it. Um, and so that should really have us all worried because, you know, um, again, McConnell's been extremely effective, in, in particular, trying to remake the court, you know, remake them more conservative, make them more white and more male. Um, you know, at this point, there are no longer any vacancies on the circuit court. Um, That's the first time in 40 years. Um, Trump's, uh, uh, you know, rate of of getting judicial nominees confirmed, I think he's done over 200 in the last three and a half years. Um, So this is a real concern, and I think we have very many um, issues at stake at this point. I mentioned reproductive justice earlier. You know, we've got the ACA. We've got DACA, all of these things that are going to be before the courts. Um, And to have another conservative on on the court can really mean a difference um, in our lives uh, for generations.
2: Yes. Tim, uh, much the same question. How do you see this unfolding?
1: Well, uh, on the surface, let me say, first of all, the hypocrisy. From some of these folks like McConnell and Lindsey Graham and, and Ted Cruz and others, it, it's just it's remarkable to behold. Although not that surprising, uh, I really think that the Republicans hope somehow that this is a game changer they've been waiting for all year if it doesn't help them in the presidential race, I think they hope it helps them in some of these Senate races where they're in some trouble. Uh, I mean, let, let's, let let's get a few things straight. No, number one, they don't care if what they said before is not what they do now. They, they just don't care about that. They say, well, that's, that's tough. That that's raw politics folks. And their ideas, Simply is if it's my side i'm for it, and if it's your side i'm against it and and that's just that and we need to understand that that's the way they are it's a scorched earth thing with them and and uh they think they have a winner here with this issue so uh they're gonna they're gonna run with it and you know Kelly's right. This appointment will fundamentally send this country in a very, very different direction and for years. And, uh, you know, Trump is elated. McConnell is elated. They can barely contain their glee. And uh, especially Trump, because what's he going to be during this time? The center of attention again. There we are.
2: Yes, I, I mean it's it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds. I mean, I think there's there's two dynamics at play. One is the Republicans can look at this: we're going to lose the presidency, we're going to lo- we're not going to win back the House, and we very well could lose the Senate. So let's try to lock down as much of the Supreme Court as we can. But then I guess at the same token, they could say if we play this in a more um, Bipartisan, above board manner. We can do better in the Senate. Some of these Senate races, but I just get the sense that's not how Mr. McConnell's looking at it. I think he looks at it as <clears throat> let's go ahead and try to get another seat on the court. Let's not worry about the hypocrisy, and we're probably going to lose what we're going to lose, and we're going to win what we're going to win. Um, of those two dynamics, Kelly, which one do you think stronger uh, for McConnell and others thinking?
3: Well, I definitely think that he is thinking in the moment about what he has an opportunity to do. And what's in front of him now is the opportunity to fill a vacancy on the court. So I think he'll be hyper-focused on that. I actually think it's a mistake for people to think that um, uh, Republicans think they might lose the White House. And the reason I say that is because, you know, in 2016, Democrats, you know, I I will admit that I I found it impossible to think that Trump would win. Um, and, you know, clearly we were wrong. Um, and so, you know, I I don't know. I mean, their entire tactics have been about suppressing votes, right, making it more difficult for people to vote, to play on the lack of enthusiasm on our side, um, and to really, you know, stir up their base. So those are things that are working for them at the moment. So I think that, you know, McConnell will be focused right now on filling this vacancy. It's something he can do quickly. It's something he knows that he's got the, the power and the votes to do. Um, and I also think, though, that they're going to be concentrating on, on being able to win back the, the White House. And I think that they'll consider, you know, all the things that they can do to make that um, possible, considering that, you know, Democrats aren't so unified at this moment.
2: Well, I mean, if they do win the White House, it's kind of a moot point then if they appoint now or in January as far as the end outcome. You know, the process might be better for them, um, you know, appointing in January, but as far as the point, you would assume it would be roughly the same. Um, Tim, Kelly mentioned the word base. Um, How do you think this affects turnout on both sides, or does it have an impact on turnout?
1: You know what? We've been talking about the polls a lot all year, and they have stayed so steady all year, a point or two up or down. And I mean the virus hasn't affected it dramatically, and the social unrest that we had this year has not affected it dramatically, the economy either crashing or soaring has not affected it in dramatic fashion. I honestly do not think that this will change the trajectory of the presidential race in a meaningful way either. Uh, There just aren't very many undecideds to go and get, maybe 5%. You know, and, and so I don't, I don't think this will drive boats from out from under the rocks for Donald Trump, this, this one issue. And subsequently, if he goes ahead and rams an appointment through, I don't think it'll cost him any votes either. I think the presidential race is, is kind of frozen in place. If it, Like I said, none of those other things affected it than the, uh, this opening on the Supreme Court. I don't believe will affect it either,
2: yeah, Tim. I think you're kind of gut guts uh feeling it's right um people are just gonna vote harder, and if you're gonna um vote anyway, voting harder, the only difference is is when you there, push the touch there, screen instead of there, bruising your finger, yeah. you may break it.
0: yeah, they're
1: already voting. that's the thing we're, we're, voting, <laughs> yeah. we're in voting season now here we go. I don't think anything is going to change what is to be. Yeah, I, I would
3: agree with Tim. Go ahead. Also, I would just say that um, I don't think the courts is a deciding factor for a lot of folks who who are. I mean, for people who are already committed, you know, they will definitely turn out. I think for undecided um, and for people who are just unengaged, I don't think the courts is the issue that's going to do it.
2: Right. Yeah, I think the courts is more of an inside baseball, people that are, uh, are highly informed as it is. Um, and so that's that's kind of a factor there. Uh, Tim, you mentioned early voting and turnout. Now, Kelly, we know you're based in that uh, northern Virginia, D.C., Maryland area, and I guess they all kind of get the same newscast. We saw the reports of lines over two football fields On the first day of early voting, and I know that's more of a Democratic area now, but do you get the sense that that is going to be a nationwide phenomenon?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think because of the pandemic, people are going to make sure that they, you know, vote early and either come out, you know, or do mail-in ballots. Um, There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for that. So, um, yes, early voting started in Virginia and there were incredibly long lines. I think that will continue. Um, But what I find interesting is whether or not we'll actually have the, um, the results, you know, on election day or on election night. Um, there's just so much happening that it it seems hard to envision that we'll know the winner that evening. But I think people are, um, again, to Tim's point, the people who are excited and who are committed are going out and they're going to make sure that they go out. And it's really, to me, um, you know, the concern about folks who are eligible but who haven't been engaged and whether or not they will show up.
2: Yes. Um, well, let's kind of get back to the appointment and the approval of uh, justices. This kind of brings it back to Joe Biden in a lot of ways, be it Clarence Thomas, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer. Um, I want to say, uh, I guess, the conservative justice before um, Clarence Thomas, uh, and um, he was the person that um, chaired those judiciary hearings. Does this kind of – Tim, do you think this kind of highlights a strength area for Joe Biden because of his vast experience in this area?
1: Well, it certainly is not going not gonna to hurt him. Uh, Biden can speak with some authority on this. Of course, he's, he's had some issues, of, uh, you know, as we know, with dealing with the Cl- Clarence Thomas, uh, hearing how that was handled. But I think that's already been placed aside, especially with with Anita Hills
2: assistance,
1: who announced he was
2: supporting
1: uh, the vice president but yeah he's he he is, his authority on that shouldn't be questioned. I wouldn't think
2: uh see you no I think that highlights an issue for him. it shows that he has experienced.
3: On this issue.
2: Um, Kind of a a somewhat related question, I guess, with Joe Biden and the judiciary and what have you. Kelly, let's say if, if the Republicans somehow push through a nominee and that person, um, you know, takes the court before January and Inauguration Day and then Joe Biden does become president. Do you think there's a good chance that with Donald Trump getting to name three in a four-year term that Joe Biden may not get to name any in his four first four year term,
3: I think it's a possibility. I actually, I you know, I this this has also been quite rare, right? Everything about the Trump presidency has been an anom- anomaly. So three in four years is is quite a lot. Um, so I, I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised um, if Joe Biden were to win and not be able to um, nominate a justice. And again, you know, we'd really be in trouble because we have to look at, you know, not only the Supreme Court, but also what's happening at the lower court level, and certainly, you know, um, McConnell has been extremely effective in filling those vacancies.
2: Yes. Well, I want to transition to uh, something different and welcome in our guest for at least the second time um, from the Center of Politics at University of Virginia and the Crystal Ball. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine, Kyle Kondik. Hey, how are you? Oh, good to have you on. Um, Well, Kyle, usually I ask questions right off the bat. And um, I'm going to go ahead and pass it to our guest host and then Tim after that. And then I'll come back and ask my questions last. So I'm going to pass it over to Kelly Macias. Kelly, your questions for Kyle.
3: Thanks. Thanks so much. And Kyle, it's really nice to uh, be with you. So I have been waking up um, in different states of panic for the last year or so thinking about this election. And as I was reading um, the uh, Sabato's Pistol Ball, um, there was a scenario that you wrote about um, earlier this week that I've been thinking about, which was what would happen if we had an electoral college tie. And so I was wondering if you could explain what happens in the event of, of an electoral college tie and what we might expect if that were to occur.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the basic reality here, and I'll go into the details, but the basic reality is that the magic number for Joe Biden to win the electoral college is 270, and basically I think the magic number for Donald Trump is 269. And the reason for that is that if we have a, an electoral college tie in which so 538 electoral votes, an exact tie would be two sixty nine and two sixty nine. I, I wish it was uh, was an odd number, and <laughs> we wouldn't have to deal with this. But that's that's just the reality that we have. One of the many, uh, um, I would say, structural uh, problems with American politics. But that's a discussion. That's a, could be a broader discussion, on uh, perhaps maybe a topical one these days. But um, bottom line here is that so the, the newly elected U.S. House would select who the new president is. You think, oh well, Democrats hold the House now. They're probably going to hold the House um, uh, next January, Uh, so Joe Biden would get elected by the House. Well, that's not really how it works. Uh, Every state, all 50 states get a single vote to cast toward electing the president in the event no one gets to 270 electoral votes. Uh, They choose from the top three electoral vote getters in this scenario in all likelihood it would just be Trump and Biden getting the getting electoral votes the senate would pick the vice president and each single senator gets a vote but in the house you would need 26 of the 50 delegations you know district of columbia doesn't have voting members of congress so they're left out of this process even though they do have uh, the district does have three electoral votes and uh, the republicans control right now 26 of the 50 delegations Democrats control 23, and then there's one that's exactly split, uh, Pennsylvania. Based on my own handicapping of the House races, I don't think it's particularly likely that the Democrats would be able to flip uh, uh, at least one of the Republican-held uh, delegations, and so I do think that um, the Republicans would be favored to hold at least 26 of the 50 delegations and to elect, to elect Trump. And so just think about this. You know, Trump would I think if it's a 269 269 electoral vote, Trump would be almost certainly losing the popular vote in that instance. He'd lose the popular vote, there'd be a tie in the Electoral College, and the minority party in the House would have power in the tie breaking vote. So think about that one.
3: Yeah, thank you. That's quite a lot to think about. And it also brings up the question of, you know, that we've had two, (laughs) that that would be the third time that a president has... Or that uh, someone had won the popular vote, but um, you know, lost the presidency. And and you know, there's a lot to think about in terms of the electoral college and whether it's really serving us at this point in time. Um,
0: well, and you know, besides that, I mean, I think that just if in the event of, the, of a house vote like this, um, the house hasn't had to to do this in in, in almost 200 years. The last time this happened was 1824. Um, when there were a number of different presidential candidates, the top vote getter was Andrew Jackson, um, uh, and uh, but he lost out to John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay, who was the Speaker of the House at the time. Clay was the fourth finishing presidential candidate, so he was not in the House vote, and um, he helped – he worked with Adams to allow Adams to get the presidency, and uh, uh, Clay became Secretary of State, and that led to the Jackson folks complaining of a so-called corrupt bargain, and Jackson – Kind of, I think that was part of the fuel for Jackson's victory against Adams four years after that. Um, but that's the last time this has happened. The 1876 election was sort of disputed, but it wasn't. It wasn't handled in a formal House vote um, the way that uh, we're describing here. So I think it would be just a huge shock to the American public that this is how a, t- a, a tiebreak would be handled.
2: Kelly, any more questions for Kyle, or do we need to segue to Tim?
3: No, we can segue to Tim. Thank you, Kyle. That's really helpful.
2: No problem. Good
1: evening, Kyle. Thank you for being back on with us tonight Uh, in what I know has to be a rather busy season for you. Okay. Get get busier all the time. Yeah, I want to talk about you for a moment because you wrote a book. A few years ago called the bellwether It's about The state of Ohio And uh, Of course Ohio has historically been The bellwether state No, No Republican as we know Has ever won without it JFK was the last Democrat if my memory Is correct To win without it That's right But now We are seeing an electoral realignment, I I guess, mainly due to demographic shifts in the country. And I was wondering, in 2020, is Ohio still the bellwether state that it historically has been, or is it perhaps being replaced by another state
0: Uh, I don't think Ohio is as reflective of the national voting as it has been in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I guess the the last time that Ohio was really, really at the center of the election um, was 2004 when, uh, you know, if John Kerry had just won Ohio and nothing else changed – he would have won the election, and Ohio voted almost exactly the same as the nation, although Kerry did just a tiny, tiny little bit better in Ohio than he um, nationally. Now, obviously, Ohio was, was important uh, in 2008 and 2012. It also featured a lot of investment and visits from the candidates in 2016, but um, Donald Trump ended up carrying it by eight points. He lost the national popular vote by two, so Ohio voted about 10 points to the right of the nation, which was further than it had been from the nation as a whole – uh, since FDR's first election back in 1932, um, Ohio historically has has had a little bit of Republican lean, but but certainly was more market in 2016. Um, the Democrats did re-elect Sherrod Brown as U.S. Senator in 2018, um, but they lost all of the uh, the five statewide executive uh, office office races by roughly three to six points apiece, um, and uh, it certainly seems like Ohio is close to competitive for president but I think that's a function of Joe Biden holding a national lead in the neighborhood of six or seven points, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it ends up being. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so again, you know, Ohio very will be close to this election, but I don't think it's going to vote as close to the national average as, uh, as it maybe it has uh, in the past. You know, the, the, and the polling is reflecting
1: what you're saying while we have a, you know, Pretty much a six to nine point race that's been steady all year. We're looking at Ohio in the neighborhood of one or two points. So on election night, wouldn't it be uh, very, very possible that Ohio actually votes with the loser in the race?
0: Uh, it's, it's possible. Now, I will say that if it's voting for the loser, it's voting for Trump, just in the sense that if, if Biden carries Ohio, I don't see any possible way that he loses the election. And I think Mm -hmm. trends in Ohio are worth watching because certainly if, if you think about like Michigan and Pennsylvania, maybe being sort of more at the center of this election, um, You know, there are a lot of parts of Ohio that are kind of like Michigan, kind of like Pennsylvania, I'd say specifically, you know, Eastern Ohio is a place where the Democrats have really, really struggled, um, particularly with Trump as the leader of the Republican Party, but even before that. um, And if you just go on the other side of the border in Pennsylvania, it's just a lot of similar kinds of voters. Uh, You know, I think the the Democrats are going to want to show at least some improvement in that kind of. Uh, Appalachian parts of eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania, in order to uh, certainly to carry Ohio, but also even potentially to, to carry Pennsylvania. Although Pennsylvania was close enough in 2016 that um, it may be that if so long as Biden doesn't do any worse outside the big cities, um, just some improvements in suburban Pittsburgh and suburban Philadelphia and uh, Harrisburg, it might be the trick to win. Whereas in Ohio. Not only does Biden have to do a lot better in the suburbs, which a lot of people think he is doing a lot better in the suburbs in Ohio than, than Clinton did in 2016, um, but he needs to make up votes in rural, small town areas because you know you need wide, mm-hmm. broad improvement to make up an eight point deficit from the previous election.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I, w- I want to ask you uh, about something else you've written about. Um, in 2016, it was so unique in that Trump won. North Carolina, Florida, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Utah, all with less than 50% of the vote, because mainly of the high third-party vote that's not going to be there this year. So, I mean, it's a gimme probably that Trump is going to bump above 50% in Utah. If he's not, he's really going to be getting killed. But what about those other states I have not been able to see where the president has expanded his base to the point where he can exceed 50 percent of the vote in any of those states. Am I right?
0: I mean, I think you are right if you're looking at the polling. I mean, I think you, know, you generally look at these places, even states that are very close in polling, um, like Florida and North Carolina, where Biden usually is leading, but but not by a lot. But you know, Biden's usually closer to 50 percent than Trump is. And uh, in some of these other states, uh, some of the industrial north states, Biden is, you know, at or even a little bit ahead of, of above 50 percent. Um, I agree with you. The third party votes almost certainly going to be smaller. Six uh, percent of the whole electorate voted for uh, voted for someone other than Clinton or Trump in 2016. You know, I'm thinking it's it's probably going to be half that. Um, I think there's, you know, with an incumbent in the White House, there's more of a focus on him. Um, the, the The third party options are even more anonymous than last time. Um, you know, 2016, you had Gary Johnson, who would, who would run in 2012 as a Libertarian candidate. You also had Jill Stein for the Green Party, who had been on the ballot as well in 2012. You know, this time it's Joe Jorgensen for the Libertarians and Howie Hawkins for the Greens. So, so really not, certainly not even uh, um, even in terms of name ID. I think even pale in comparison to someone like Stein and Johnson. Um, you do have Kanye West on the ballot in a handful of states, although none of them are. I'd say particularly important um, uh, electorally. Um, and so the you know, bottom line is, I think that, that for Trump, you know, 46 percent may not quite be enough this time. You know, I do think he could still win um, without winning the popular vote. But, uh, you know, if if, uh, if Biden's at, you know, 50, 51, 52, um, you know, that that gets that gets harder for, for the president.
1: Okay, um, I'm one of those uh, nerds that gets out a blank map online somewhere and starts, you know, filling it in, uh, different shades of red and blue. Uh, I drive my wife crazy doing things like that. But um, one thing I marked in immediately, and a bright red, was the second district of Maine early in the year. Now I'm seeing polls. That Joe Biden is actually a couple of points up in a district that Donald Trump easily won four years ago. What in the world, Kyle, is going on up there in the second district of Maine?
0: Well, I think what you're seeing is that, you know, the reason Biden is polling or is is, is polling better than Hillary Clinton performs is that he's performing better with white voters in general. I mean, there's actually some indication mm-hmm. he's actually lost low ground among non white voters. I mean non white voters collectively are gonna vote very strongly democratic, but um, maybe not quite as strongly democratic as they were even in 2016. Um, but you know, if in fact uh, Biden is you know holding up well with both white voters with a four-year college degree and white voters without, relatively speaking, for Democrat, well, you might expect to see that in a district like like Maine too, which is almost entirely white.
3: Um, mm-hmm.
0: And you know, it may there may also be some sense that. Uh, you know, Biden's, Biden's maybe a better candidate for um um for, for you know, for kind of small town rural white voters than Hillary Clinton was. Um, it may be that some folks took a chance on Trump and maybe they're they're regretting that. Um it, there may be also something sort of particular to New England that uh um, you know, maybe maybe the president's gonna do uniquely you know, poorly there after after, you know, showing some some signs and in 2016. But yeah, I mean, my sense is that uh, Maine second district is, is, is very much legitimately closed. I think there's still some dispute as to whether Maine for president is going to use a ranked choice voting system. Um, last I saw as a, few, as a few days ago, um, that was uh, still being contested in the courts, but that's another wrinkle for Maine. Uh, it's very important for mm-hmm. the, uh, for the U S Senate race in, in Maine the ranked choice voting because, That seems quite possible that uh, both Sarah Gideon and Susan Collins will finish uh, short of 50 percent.
1: Goodness. Uh, One more question, then I'm going to throw it to David, who is highly likely going to ask you about the politics of what is currently in the news. Um, Best guess, are we going to have a winner on election night or even the morning after?
0: Uh, I don't necessarily know if we'll have a declared winner, but um, I do think that uh, if Florida breaks clearly one way or the other, my guess is that that person is winning the presidency. I think if Joe Biden were to win Florida by even two or three points, I would imagine he'd be winning the election. And likewise, I think if Donald Trump were winning Florida by um, by several points, that probably would, would bode well for him and some of the other competitive states. Um, Florida is a state that is often really really close and sometimes has uh, questions about the elections there because the state is close and it, it merits further inspection a lot of the times um, but it's also a state that's used to having a lot of early voting it's used to having a lot of mail-in voting uh, and it count the, the state counts quickly um, so Florida I mm-hmm. think will help uh, will help tell the tale
1: all right and with that I'm going to send it over to David David
2: Kyle, that was the most artful uh, description of calling Florida elections a total goat rodeo I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, look the, the,
0: the, the state, you know, obviously it's had a lot of high-profile uh, election issues over the years. But again, I think if other states were as consistently close as Florida, you'd probably see that too. It's just that um, – you know, when you've got a Senate race, it's like last cycle decided by, you know, 10,000 votes or something. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the 2000, the, the 2000 presidential debacle, uh, states decided by, was 538 votes or something um, out of millions cast. Uh, you know, you, you're going to, there's going to be more of a microscope. I mean, I think, my guess is that if there were other states that were so consistently close, they might look like they're having bad election administration too. Um, but again, Florida does, Florida does count quickly. So, again, if it, if it is decisive one way or the other, um, decisive meaning even two or three points, I think that
2: might be pretty telling. Oh, yes. I mean, we have Craig Pittman on the show. I don't know if you read him or follow him. Uh, born and raised in Florida and fl- follows par- Florida politics and culture in general. And he is one of the most fascinating, fun uh, uh, reads and guests to have on because of the way Florida is. Um well, Tim alluded to it, and and Kyle, if you don't want to answer this, since we didn't prompt you into this, but of course, when I booked you and coordinated all this, we unfortunately didn't know the sad news that was coming Friday evening. But how do you think that uh, the passing of Ruth Gator, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the attempted or non attempt of filling her seat will have any impact on the presidential race? I mean,
0: obviously, we're just at the at the start of this story. You know, I will say that. I think the default position we should have on trying to see whether some big news development will move the numbers is that we shouldn't expect it to happen until we see it happen, because obviously there's been so much that has happened in this presidency, and particularly over this year, most notably the pandemic, but a lot of other things. And, you know, the numbers don't move all that much. You know, the perceptions of the president, usually pretty consistent. Now, they're consistently weak, but they're also not. You know, he's not – the of not in a sort of a terminal position, um, and uh, the, um, uh, the horse race with Joe Biden has been pretty steady throughout this year as well. Now, I, I think you could argue that Trump has probably lost a little from COVID, but he hasn't lost a lot, I don't think. Now, what he's lost could ultimately be the difference between winning and losing, given how – you know, given the unique circumstances of American politics. Um, but I don't uh, – um, I don't think I can look at this and say – oh, boy, this is going to really change things. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, enthusiasm was already through the roof. I was already expecting a big turnout despite the pandemic. Um, You know, partisans are highly engaged on both sides. Uh, You know, maybe this this sort of turns up the heat, but the fire's already been burning pretty hot. Um, You know, and obviously, I don't want to downplay the importance of this because um, in terms of the power of the Supreme Court and the, the, you know, sort of future of these Supreme Court battles, it's highly consequential, so I'm not – I don't want to downplay it. It's just that I can't sit here and tell you that, oh, well, the election the election odds have markedly changed. I, I, maybe they will, but I, I I, don't think we should necessarily assume that they will.
2: Yes. Well, one final political question I had for you was in mid-July you wrote an article about the Electoral College and how it may expand at the fringes. Um, what are some of the key, uh, like, fringe states, if you will – that um, you're looking at that may um, flip?
0: Well, um, you know, the, the uh, it, it seems like the president's position in, in, in some of these kind of reach states for the Democrats is maybe not as good as it could be. I mean, uh, you know, Montana, I think The New York Times just had a poll out this morning or yesterday um, in which uh, – uh, They had the president up by seven in Montana. I think he won that state by twenty, and that state has a very important Senate race. So the closer the state is for president, the more vulnerable uh, Senator Steve Daines is, the Republican. And also South Carolina, um, you know, obviously Lindsey Graham is going to be right at the center of this uh, confirmation fight, which might actually help him because he's been lagging with, uh, with you know, he's he's typically doing worse in the state than, than Donald Trump is but that's another state where the president's standing does not seem to be as good as it once was. Um, you know, if Joe Biden were to somehow carry South Carolina, which doesn't, doesn't seem like it's going to happen at this point, but Graham definitely would lose in that sort of situation. Um, but again, if South Carolina is close enough for president, maybe that helps Jamie Harrison get in range um, for the, for the Senate. You know, there's, there's, um, um, there are a few kind of categories of states. So there's like kind of reach states for Trump which I think are like Minnesota, New Hampshire, Nevada, um, you know, three close states that Clinton carried. Then there's kind of these core six battlegrounds that I think whichever candidate wins the majority of will win the election. So Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, and the Sun Belt, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin in the industrial north. Those I think are – those are all won by Trump, but they were all relatively narrow. Um, so that's sort of the core battleground states. And then you've got kind of the the more credible reach states for, for, for Biden. And that would be Iowa, Ohio, Georgia, and Texas. And then, you know, on the real sort of periphery, you're you're getting into like a Montana, Kansas, South Carolina, um, et cetera. You know, if Biden wins any of Iowa, Georgia, Ohio, Texas, I think the election is, is, uh, is probably over.
2: Yes, sir. Well, um, Before I thank you for coming on, if people want to read your articles at Crystal Ball or follow you on social media, just tell our listeners how to get there.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, We're at centerforpolitics.org backslash Crystal Ball. Uh, We have a free newsletter that comes out – typically every Thursday, but these days it's been, it's been more than once a week. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, just sign up with your email and it's totally free. Uh, we have been doing a, a weekly webinar series. It's been uh, broadcast at 2 PM on Thursdays at our YouTube, YouTube channel, UVA CFP. And it's also available as a, uh, as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, all sorts of other um, podcast, uh, podcast providers. And uh, I'm very active on Twitter at uh, K Condic.
2: Yes, sir. Well, thank you again for coming on tonight and sharing that knowledge. And we'll be continuing to read your uh, writings, following you on social media. Look at your um, house rankings that you do with um, Professor Sabato and uh, Miles Coleman um, at the Crystal Ball. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yes, that was Kyle Kondik of the Center for Politics. Uh, So glad to have him on. I mean, just one of the real uh, knowledgeable people in our our industry, if you will. I guess we don't work in it, but you know what I'm saying. Um, Well, Kelly, Kyle mentioned Florida and and how it is – really, it is a fascinating state. It's got so many things going on. And in recent um, weeks, there's been a lot of articles and polls coming out that show that Joe Biden is underperforming uh, with Latino voters, really maybe not just in Florida, but particularly in Florida. At the same time, he's probably doing the best with senior voters of any Democrat since um, Bill Clinton in 1996. Um, You uh, got your uh, Ph.D. in Florida. Give us your take on the state.
3: Yeah, I did. I got my Ph.D. at Nova Southeastern uh, in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and it's interesting, you called it a goat rodeo. I also think that was quite polite. <laughs> um, I might say some things about it that probably aren't appropriate for this venue, but it's, um, it's, it is fascinating because it's it's too close to call. And as, as Kyle was talking about it, I started thinking about some of the numbers, right? So Obama won Florida by 0.86% of the vote in 2012. Um, and Trump won by only 1.2% of the vote in 2016. So, you know, two to three points, you know, Kyle's point is absolutely right. Two to three points can really make a difference. Um, so I, too, have been following what's been happening. And, yes, um, all, um, you know, uh, sources indicate that uh, Biden is underperforming, um, you know, in Florida in general, but specifically with Latino voters. Um, and you know i i, I wouldn 't be able to say why I think that is, but what I, you know from what i 'm reading, I certainly see that um, there's a whole uh, a, a lot of um reasons for that you know one is that um it it, it Democrats haven 't necessarily paid attention to uh, Latino men uh, vote as a voting block, um, and so you know while the efforts are often on turning out black women. Um, or even Latinas, there has not been um, quite an emphasis on men. So that's something that, um, that leaves people sort of disillusioned. Um, you know, there's also um, this, you know, Idea Political actually just came out with a really interesting story this morning about that, um, you know, sort of talking about how, um, you know, Trump's sort of, um, you know, strongman personality might resonate with some um, men who have roots in Latin American countries. Um, you know, I don't know if that's true, but that's, that's what Democrats have told Politico. Um, and then there are people who don't see a big difference between Democrats and Republicans. And so this is where I mentioned earlier this idea that, you know, I think um, the, the Democrats do themselves a disservice by not focusing on people who um, are eligible to vote but who have felt disillusioned and disengaged. Um, because that is a population um, that needs engagement and attention, right? So we've been talking about this idea that we know, you know, people who are super engaged, um, either on the right or on the left, and those folks are going to come out, but there's a large, there's millions of people in the middle who, you know, for some reason haven't felt engaged. And so the outreach, it seems, to to those parties have been really lacking. So it is a real concern, especially because the race, it's so tight. You know, it's at, at this point, I think the last poll I saw was Biden was at 48% and Trump was at 46%. You know, so the two to 3% really does make a difference there.
2: Yes. Now, one thing oh. that I think, oh, go, Tim, go ahead. And then I'm if you don't ask it, I'll ask a, a redirector to Tim. Well, uh, I, I was going to uh,
1: ask her about this particular thing that you alluded to. Um, in polling, I see here that Trump is running eight percent worse among senior voters in Florida than he did four years ago. So we've we've uh, mapped out Vice President's problem with Hispanics. What what Kelly is Donald Trump's problem with what has reliably in recent years been a conservative voting block with seniors what's going on there
3: you know i i'm not completely sure but i would say that i think a huge concern for a lot of senior voters is pandemic Um, and Mm -hmm. you know we know that donald trump has not handled the pandemic well at all you know he flip-flops on what he says about it you know we saw if you saw the town hall he he, he's, he, he refuses to say what we know we need to do, which is that people need to wear masks, right? He continues to say that masks aren't good or that people don't think that they're good, you know, and we know they're necessary to save lives. Um, and I think seniors really care about that. Seniors are the most impacted, right? People who are older, um, people with underlying health conditions. Um, and so I think that people are probably really tired of the back and forth. This has felt like an incredibly long year. Um, you know, the pandemic is really scary for folks. It's also tied to the economy, right, because people have lost jobs and income um, and some of the stability that they had going into this year. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if that's, you know, I, I, um, I, I don't know that my grandmother would love for me to call her a senior on radio, but I, I'm very <laughs> close to my grandmother and I know the pandemic is on her mind all the time. So I, it wouldn't surprise me if, if that's part of it.
1: Yeah, and I think you're probably uh, very accurate about that. Okay, David, I'm thrown.
3: Yes, well, going back to
2: um, uh, Hispanic voters, we know that Hurricane Maria forced a lot of people from Puerto Rico to move back to the mainland United States or to the mainland United States for the first time, and Florida was a top destination. Wouldn't it seem that those new voters who are automatically, their citizens in Puerto Rico, if they then move their registration from um, Puerto Rico to uh, Florida, they go on the Florida voter rolls, and they have a significant reason to oppose Donald Trump. Wouldn't those voters help in some areas of Florida?
3: I think they absolutely would. Yeah, that's true. Um, one of the things I forgot to mention, though, which is, is – um, Another issue that's happening is that there is a lot of conspiracy theories, the whole QAnon group um, and other kinds of really rabid, horrific right-wing messaging that has actually happened in Spanish language right now um, that is not being countered by the Democrats. So we've got this rise of – Uh, you know, Spanish language radio that's sort of addressing these very wild conspiracy theories. We've also got um, things happening on social media. Um, WhatsApp is big for a lot of people in international communities, right, because that's the way that they communicate with home. Um, And so all of these, um, you know, some of the things that we see on Twitter, right, and Facebook, these, you know, outrageous sort of lies um, are, you know, the pedophile conspiracies, all really kinds of wild things are happening and they're being unchecked. And so I think we also can't ignore that that is also taking place um, and that that's not being countered in Spanish, right? Um, and so, you know, new immigrants, uh, people who are just, um, they're not quite new, right, if they're eligible to vote, but people who um, are newer to the country or who are predominantly relying on Spanish language um, news Um, And sources for information are also being bombarded with that kind of information that's not being countered in any way.
2: Well, I I didn't know that about the QAnon conspiracy down in Florida. But if they're looking for a congressional candidate, Tim and I have one that will trade for them cheap. uh, (laughs) Because we unfortunately live where Marjorie Greene is running, kind of the the queen of the QAnon politicians. Um, That's right. But but seriously, one more group. Uh, we know in 2018 that uh, Democrats lost such crushingly close elections for U.S. Senate and Bill Nelson, and now that loss is looking even bigger now, and Andrew Gilliam for governor. But at the same time, a ballot me- measure passed to where uh, people that have served their time and debt to society can now vote again. Um, but then there was a law passed to where those voters— are those um, potential voters or citizens now have to pay their um, fines and debts before they can be added back to the voter roll. Now, obviously, that's going to take that number maybe down from tens of thousands to thousands or hundreds of thousands to tens of thousands, but I do think some voters are going to go ahead and pay the fine because they're in such a better financial place than they were, obviously, when they were incarcerated, and it's so important to them. So how do those new voters – Impact the election in Florida?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this is such an interesting question, especially because, um, you know, folks worked so hard to get Amendment 4 passed and it passed with um, almost 65% of the vote. Um, And so, you know, what that meant was that um, I think 1.4 million, maybe 1.5 million. Um, former, formerly incarcerated people were eligible to vote. And so, as you mentioned, now they've got, you know, what's essentially, uh, to me, the equivalent of a poll tax, right, where people have to meet all these qualifications in order to be able to vote. And so I do think that that will impact the, the percentage of people who become eligible. Uh, we already know that, you know, we live in a country that really stigmatizes formerly incarcerated people, right? It becomes harder to get a job. It becomes harder to apply for um, public funds to go to school um, and other kinds of things. Um, and so, um, you know, in that way, it may be harder for people to be able to meet those requirements to pay off. Um, Court costs and what have you. So I do think it will it will impact the amount of people who are eligible to vote. And that's really unfortunate because the voters have already decided that they um, that they overwhelmingly support the idea of formerly incarcerated people being able to vote.
2: Yes. And I was just watching all in. Uh, this weekend, the new documentary about voting. Uh, Stacey Abrams is one of the key uh, figures in the documentary. But I I learned that Florida instituted this rule just decades ago. I mean, it's pretty much a relic of um, Um, post-Reconstruction. It's that old and um, it's just lingered around for that long. Um, Well, guys, let's have one more topic, I guess, and, and We don't always discuss the most important topics because some things are just too fun. Um, We know that there are going to be three presidential debates, official and uh, one vice presidential. And then at the same time, uh, both candidates participated in town halls this past week. We might get to that, too. But Donald Trump proposed having a four-hour marathon debate with Joe Rogan is the moderator. He he's a podcaster, uh, just like us, but not um, a big time political journalist. Uh, but th- to be the moderator, um, Tim, what was your thought when you saw the the idea of the Joe Rogan marathon debate?
1: Oh well, it would be reality television right up Donald Trump's uh, alley there, and other than that, I just lapped it off although i really do believe trump was serious about it uh cause i i don't believe there's a humorous bone in the man's body i i know I, he he doesn't elicit any humor from me either but um I, you know that nothing like that was ever going to happen but uh, the the thing is although not on this crazy a scale as to propose something like this but the person who is behind in a race always wants more debates. Have you ever noticed that? No matter where they are, you know, I'll debate you once a week on the radio, on the street corner, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Trump just took it to where he's comfortable on the reality television stage with a with a uh, comedian who also would probably uh, – be sympath- well. Would be sympathetic to him, and uh, of course, no one but Donald Trump took that seriously. Not even Joe Rogan. So there we are.
2: Yes, um, Kelly, your take on the marathon Joe Rogan idea?
3: <laughs> um, well, I agree with Tim. I think Donald Trump was absolutely serious. I think four hours would appeal to him because he loves to talk. He loves the sound of his own voice. Um, but it also highlights for me just how unserious um, the state of our politics is for some people, right, that we would get a comedian and a mixed martial arts commentator to, host, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a debate, you know, which is, again, this election is the most consequential of our lifetime, really. And I know people say that for every election, but we're really in a crisis point here. So um, it's just so unserious and so in line with the idea of reality TV. The other thing that occurred to me, though, was that I am actually all for expanding the format um, because I do think, again, when I think about these millions of, of disengaged people, that I think, um, you know, a, a format that maybe widens who has access to candidates and who gets to ask questions could be a good thing, um, but not not in this way. And I agree that I don't even think Joe Rogan thought it was serious. Um, and and uh, Joe Biden has said, he will per- participate in the things that um, in the debates that are approved, right, and sanctioned by the Commission on Debates, and this one would not be. So, I I don't think we're looking at a four-hour. Uh, debate and thank goodness because no one wants to hear Donald Trump talk for four hours. <laughs> I don't think want to hear any politician talk for
2: four straight hours. That that's uh you'd really need to pack a lunch for that thing. Um I, I tell you what my first thought was the, the Dave Chappelle show skit where um he played the character Tyrone Biggums, and he said, Joe Rogan, you're crazy. Um and, and I thought, you know, if if Dave Chappelle could wear that outfit and then say Donald Trump, you're crazy uh, that would kind of fit uh, what the reaction could have been, and you know. But I got to thinking about: I was like, why does he um, think of Joe Rogan? I doubt he listens to his podcast or watches UFC or any of that. And you know, when he was probably doing The Apprentice, the Fear Factor was probably at his height, and so they probably were two of the top shows on NBC. So therefore, he figures: if well, if I had this big run into the, with The Apprentice, he must be a big deal too. Um, and, Kelly, I think you're right about expanding things, and here's what you could expand. Joe Rogan has a podcast. Today on the show, we're going to have Donald Trump. Next week on the show, we're going to have Joe Biden. They sit in for an hour. If you want to listen to it, you download it. If anything newsworthy said, it makes the clips on the news. It gets posted on yeah. social media. They could both sit down with Joe Rogan because we know people have been on The Breakfast Club. People go on Jimmy Fallon and uh, Stephen Colbert. I mean, yeah. you can do Other formats, they just don't have to be a debate, which is a serious uh, situation. You
1: know, David, David, I was going to say, I don't think people actually take the real debates that seriously. Generally, Mm -hmm. debates mainly serve to firm up the beliefs of those who have already decided, you know, the partisans and the voters that have already decided – Twice in my lifetime have I seen a debate change any minds. I think 1960, uh, people decided that John Kennedy was at least the equal of Richard Nixon as a result of the debate. And in 1990, there's no doubt in my mind that the Reagan-Carter debate moved moved, uh, several percentage points of people who decided after that night that it was okay to go ahead and vote for Reagan. Uh, yeah. Other than that, I, I I don't think seriously these debates will do anything unless someone absolutely falls flat on their face.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with him, and and I, and I would just say that also um, I think where they're most helpful is the primaries. Um, But we had so many. Remember, the primary season, we had, I think, 18 Democrats running or something Mm -hmm. ridiculous. So people are fatigued. I don't even know at this point if people are really going to watch them. Um, And I think any debates we have, I mean, we know, um, you know, those are not good forums for Donald Trump. He's not articulate. You know, he kind of tends to say the same thing. He may go for the zinger or the cheap laugh or cheap point. Um, But that's not his strong suit at all.
2: Yeah, and, and Kelly, I think you're right that uh, the, the primary debates may be more valuable on both sides, and isn't it ironic that maybe the most um, memorable line of the primary debates this time was when Kamala Harris uh, challenged Joe Biden, and I guess the light went on in Joe Biden's mind and say, hey, she's pretty tough. I'm going to give some of that to Mike Pence. I'm going to get her on my side. Uh,
3: <laughs> that is right, and that is a debate I cannot wait for. <laughs>
2: Yes. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for coming in tonight. Uh, it was so enjoyable to have you on, and we're going to continue to have you on at, at least as a guest. And if if one of us calls in sick or what have you, uh, we may have to call on you again.
3: Thank you. This was so much fun. I really appreciated the opportunity.
2: Yes, ma'am. Well, good evening,
1: everybody. Good night, guys. Good night. We are
3: the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and...